Hello, I'm Olena Parko and I'm delighted to welcome you to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Basis Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Barton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. On this episode, Dr. Tomasz Kamusala at the University of St. Andrews talks to us about minority and language politics in interwar Poland and beyond. Tomasz, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this particular aspect of history? Thank you very much for inviting me to the series. Uh, I'm really happy to be with you. When it comes uh, to the beginnings uh, of my uh, research, uh, as it happens, uh, is uh, a result of contingency. Basically, in Poland, uh, I was born and raised in a region which is a borderland region nowadays on the border with the Czech Republic, actually bisected uh, by the state frontier, Polish-Czech frontier, at, at that time Czechoslovakia I was on the other side of the border. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, 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 the region is multilingual and uh, multi-ethnic and uh, until 1945 was also divided uh, between Poland, Czechoslovakia and Germany. And all these influences are there. So when, when I was uh, a boy, people were speaking the local Silesian language, standard Polish, uh, German and it was kind of normal, yeah. But when I came, to, started my formal education, everything was in Polish, and everything else was uh, shunned and avoided. So that was the background. It was there. It, it was my experience. And uh, after the fall of communism, when I started my academic career, uh, and I wanted to do some research, there was not much money for any research whatsoever. I decided, and I started my family at that time, so I had to earn a living, but out of sudden, I realized I can study my region. It's really interesting, and no one has done it really in this Western way uh, to, 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 to research the region. So that's, in a nutshell, uh, the beginning, uh, how it started. Uh, thank you. It's very interesting. Actually, it makes me think that uh, I don't remember who, but uh, they said that uh, all every historian writes his own autobiography. You know, so we all kind of back uh, to our roots and try to understand our own history and kind of write a bigger history. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, what was Poland before and after the First World War, and how had the Polish experience differed from other new nation states in Eastern and Central Europe that emerged in 1918-1990? Well, that's a very interesting question, because obviously we can say that before 1945, or actually before the Second World War, in the interwar period, uh, Poland was uh, a nation-state, and after 1945 it became a communist state. Uh, but truly speaking, uh, when it comes uh, 
to the ideological legitimation of Poland as a nation-state before the war and after the war, it was the same. So, uh, although it is strongly kind of denied, especially nowadays under this uh, kind of pro-authoritarian regime in today's Poland, that interwar Poland was radically different from communist Poland, it was. I mean, there were some differences, obviously. Because uh, from the uh, uh, point of view of ethnic composition, uh, interwar Poland, uh, uh, the population of interwar Poland in one third was not ethnically Polish. There were Ukrainians, uh, Jews, uh, Belarusians, uh, Lithuanians, uh, Germans, uh, you name it, obviously. All of them had the, Polish, uh, had the same Polish citizenship and they were citizens uh, of interwar Poland, but in practice they were treated as second-class uh, citizens. And uh, there is also the question of religion. Uh, there were people uh, professing different religions. Then what is the standard Polish religion, quote-unquote, Roman Catholicism? So people uh, who were professing... Uh, Greek Catholicism, or Orthodox Christianity, Judaism, Protestant Islam, and so on. After the Second World War, uh, the territory of Poland changed dramatically at, at Potsdam, uh, and uh, many different ethnically defined and religiously defined groups of population were expelled, from Poland uh, or left under duress or were uh, assimilated uh, by force. So Poland became officially uh, communist Poland, ethno-linguistically homogeneous. There were no minorities, uh, according to the official rhetoric of communist Poland uh, uh, in this country. And uh, that meant that everyone was a Pole, meaning a Polish speaker, a native Polish speaker, and a Roman Catholic in a communist country. <laughs> so, in a way, it was illogical because communism was uh, uh, an ideology of atheism, if you want. And but it was following the wishes, the desires, the plans of Polish ethno-linguistic nationalism, as developed uh, by. Dmowski and his so-called national uh, democracy uh, in the late 19th century, and they wanted to implement this program in interwar Poland, but they didn't manage fully. However, under communism, this uh, anti-interwar Poland uh, communists uh, did in full implement uh, Dmowski's program after 1945. So the, 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 the two phases of the same Polish nation-state uh, rhetorically are, are different, but when it comes to the program, they are all the time the same, uh, going in the direction of uh, an ethno-linguistically homogeneous Polish nation-state in which minorities must either assimilate or leave. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for already uh, turning your attention to the main issue of our conversation, the, the, the ethnic or, or other minorities. And um, 
Actually, I know that, that uh, in your work you're looking a lot at the role of language in kind of linguistic politics of the state. Um, and, and could you perhaps elaborate on, on the role of language in, in constructing, you know, kind of I- identities and, and separating the, the kind of dominant nation from um, minorities and majorities and, and so on? And also, like, kind of what role did this language politics play um, in, in defining, basically, ethnic, ethnic categories? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, Central Europe is a very strange place from the global perspective because language equates politics in this, uh, in this region. Look, I'm in Scotland, and here people speak and write either English or Gaelic, or Scots, but language does not make them, language does not make anyone living here less Scottish. All of them are Scots. Language does not decide about Scottishness. The fact of living in Scotland uh, decides on Scottishness. And in Central Europe, nations are defined through languages. Obviously, it goes back to the dilemma which the early German nationalists faced in the wake uh, during the Napoleonic Wars after the Holy Roman Empire was destroyed and they wanted to oppose the French and in France they decided everyone living in France is a citizen and all citizens constitute the French nation. So there is no mention of, of language, at least in the definition of the, the French nation. However, after the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire in 1806, the German nationalists or anti-French intellectuals from this former uh, Holy Roman Empire They wanted to oppose the uh, French uh, domination of their territories, of their polity, which disappeared. But they could not, or they didn't want uh, uh, to create small nations, you know. I mean, they wanted to use the ideology of nationalists to oppose France, because that was the only ideology which seemed to work at the time. However, they didn't want to create a, a, a nation of Saxonians, a nation of Thuringians, and a, na- a nation of Bavarians. Yeah? They wanted to create a nation which would kind of correspond to what uh, the whole uh, Roman Empire had been. And, but they didn't know how to do it, because there was no definition how to create such a nation. And... Uh, In 1813, this kind of uh, nationalist, early nationalist and, and a poet, Ernst Moritz Arndt, he wrote a, a small chapbook of marching songs uh, for Prussian soldiers who then embarked in 1813 on the last coalition war against Napoleon, which turned out to be successful. And one of the songs uh, is, the title is, Was is Deutschland? Meaning, what is German or where is German? It's kind of long, rambling, multi-stanza marching song. But there is one stanza which kind of provided an answer to this dilemma. 
German is there where the German language clings. Yeah. Okay. Let's leave. Let's let's leave the question what the language is. Uh, let's leave out the question what the language is. But that's. I mean, we can pinpoint the the the, the uh, emergence of ethnolinguistic nationalism as an ideology to, to 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 this moment, and and then this stanza or this this rule, uh, the nation is uh, co composed from speakers of language X or language uh, language Y became the norm in the 19th century across Central Europe. And it is the norm until today. In this region, language is uh, the politics. Language is the politics of this region. And it's very difficult to understand uh, for students from both Central Europe and Western Europe. Uh, what's going on? Because they use the same words, like the nation, but they mean completely different things. Yeah? From the perspective of Central Europe, for a Polish student, Slovak student, Ukrainian student, the American nation is an impossibility, because there is no American language. So actually, these guys living in the United States of America, because they speak English, they, they are they should be members of the English nation. <laughs> That's how it looks like. Uh, and and uh, uh, from, from the perspective of uh, a British student, a Scottish student, it, it is just uh, mind-boggling that a person who has a Polish citizenship uh, but speaks at home German is not a Pole. How come? <laughs> but this settles down to different uh, understandings uh, what the nation is. Yeah. So we we use the same terms, the terms of modernity that uh, that uh, that humanity is divided into nations and each nation lives in its own nation state. But these definitions, actual definitions, the practice of of defining nations differs. And in Central Europe, it is strongly connected. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, languages. So, <laughs> could I then I ask you about the Ukrainian case? What do you think about then the Ukrainian case? Then obviously we have the Ukrainian and the Russian speakers, you know, kind of citizens of Ukraine, and you cannot claim that you know either are you know more dominant or you know are less citizens. What do you think about this case? Is it something different, particular, or? No, no, not at all. It, it is like uh, interwar Poland, yeah? Uh, like one-third of the population in interwar Poland were speaking other languages than Polish, yeah? So from the civic perspective, from the perspective of the constitution, because all of them had Polish citizenship, they, 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 they were considered uh, to be uh, members of the Polish nation, yeah? But that's, that's the legal definition or the legal approach. Uh, the political approach was that only these people who speak uh, uh, Polish uh, as their first language and who are Roman Catholics uh, are true members of the Polish uh, nation. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine, uh, I mean, I'm not a specialist, so correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there was this kind of post-Soviet moment when language didn't matter. When 
people were living in Ukraine, they had Ukrainian citizenship, so whatever they spoke was not so important. Uh, uh, the more important fact was that they shared the same citizenship. And uh, probably that was true in the 90s, but uh, after uh, coming to power of Mr. Putin in Russia, uh, he started using uh, language for this neo-imperial project, uh, which in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, uh, got the official name of uh, the, the Ruski Emir, the Russian word. Yeah? And uh, in line with this project, that, 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 that's a very interesting development, yeah? because uh, in Putin's Russia, they started using ethno-linguistic imperialism, sorry, ethno-linguistic nationalism for a neo-imperial project. Yeah? That now, now, nowadays, nowadays, whoever is speaking uh, Russian as their first language or native language, if you want, they are considered to be members of the Russian nation. Yeah. That would be like in Britain, uh, some, uh, some new prime minister coming to power and saying that all the English speakers all around the world, uh, they are members of the English nation and they should be loyal to their father. <laughs> and so, so he, he, probably you are asking about this dynamics, yeah, because... Uh, out of sudden, language uh, at the threshold of the 21st century became a strongly politicized uh, issue uh, in uh, Ukraine. And uh, it, it, it was used as a pretext because languages do not, do, do not start wars. Languages are not controlling humans. It's humans who are creating and controlling languages was used as a pretext uh, for starting, uh, for, for annexing Crimea and for starting war in, in East, Eastern uh, uh, Ukraine. Yeah, definitely language is politics. I mean, in Ukraine, this is, this is for sure. But also we have like the war exposed this fact that, that there are so many Russian-speaking Ukrainians who are loyal to, 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 you know, the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian government. So it's kind of, I think it's a very difficult, you know, this... This ethno-linguistic approach um, it has a lot of problems when applied to Ukraine, and and I think perhaps like you know it, it requires further studies. Uh, but actually, when you were uh, thank you for mentioning this Russian world, um, I also made a note of this when you were talking about you know Germany and the unification of Germany when German language was important, and it seems that you know Russians are doing the same kind of playing the Russian card to try to. You know, reclaim the territories that they that they have lost uh, over the centuries, and and language again becomes becomes politics and, and very important kind of geopolitics even. Um, but let us maybe uh, come back to the issue of of uh, Poland, and um, I wanted to ask you about your own uh, research, and I know that one of your main research interests is uh, the history and politics of language in Upper Silesia. Um, could, could you tell us why you have decided to focus on this particular region and what makes it special in the context of our conversation, in the context of minority experiences? You have, you have already said a little bit in the introduction, but it would be interesting to know about your findings from uh, your, um, you know, your own research. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the, the region and the history of it, uh, uh, first of all, was not and still is not really present 
in, in the mainstream of Polish historiography. Uh, it is claimed to be part of Poland, but in a way it is kind of blotted out from uh, national memory or from even research, mainstream research uh, on the history uh, of Poland. Uh, uh, and and uh, it, it uh, you know, it, 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 it also impacts on everyday life. Look, when my daughter went to school and uh, started coming back home, and we lived at that time in, 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 in the town, or in the uh, historical town of Kozle, Kozel, she uh, had a walk with me along the river, the, the river Oder, and she was saying, oh, that's the Vistula. Because it is, it is a big river. Why is it the Vistula? They told her at school, you know. In Poland, the, the big river is the Vistula. The other does not exist, yeah. So uh, the, 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 the national master narrative uh, kind of replaces the reality of historical or geographical experience uh, as uh, seen by their own eyes uh, by people on the ground. Okay, that's one thing. Uh, on, on, the, on the other hand, uh, uh, basically the introduction of ethnolinguistic nationalism as the ideology of statehood creation, legitimation and maintenance impacted adversely on the inhabitants of uh, uh, Upper Silesia as a historical uh, region. In the 19th century, all the Upper Silesians were happy to be, uh, were happy to be loyal Prussians. They were referring to themselves as Prussians and so on. And language didn't matter because they were speaking a local Slavic uh, dialect nowadays can be seen as, uh, as a Silesian language or a dialect of Polish or even a dialect of German if you want. And uh, at school they were learning German and through the medium of German and, uh, and th th that was sufficient. Yeah. It didn't matter. Uh, language was at that time not yet uh, an instrument of making one into a member of this nation or that nation. Uh, the, uh, what what mattered when it came to the socio-political uh, uh, structuring of society were, were estates. You were either a nobleman or a commoner or a burger, and religion. And uh, re religion was an issue, yeah, because Prussia was a Lutheran, Protestant polity, and but uh, the, the the majority of the population of Persia were Catholic. However, the Prussian monarchs in the late 18th century uh, came to an understanding, okay, we accept all the religions, fine, as long as you pay taxes, we don't bother you. So that was, that was the understanding. And then in uh, uh, 1871, uh, the German Empire is created as a German nation state, and everyone should speak only and use only German. Wow. So I cannot... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 when, when you speak another language, you are less German, yeah? because ethnolinguistic nationalism is becoming the dominant ideology of statehood creation and legitimation at that time. And you should be also Protestant. Yeah? So 
the so-called Kulturkampf or the war of cultures was basically Germany's war against the Catholic uh, Church. So that's that's, uh, how uh, these problems, these issues impacted the population there. And the population wanted to be left alone to their devices as it uh, had been before 1871. Okay. So during during the time during the time of the uh, German Empire, uh, they, they they were impacted negatively until until uh, 1888 or 1889 when the Kulturkampf came to an end, and out of sudden, okay, you guys, you have your Catholic religion, we won't be bothering you. So part of the pre-1871 consensus was back. On the other hand, also part of this kind of uh, allowing language, uh, consensus on allowing all kinds of languages was back. Okay, you use in church whatever language you want, we do not bother you. Obviously it was Latin. Uh, however, when it came to singing, to religious education, it, it, was, it was Polish, and when it came to pastoral services, it was Silesian, yep. Uh, however, uh, when you went to school or to the army, it was it was German. So in a way, the consensus was bad. Uh, then, after the First World War, uh, Poland, uh, uh, the newly created Poland, uh, wanted Upper Silesia yeah, better. Uh, why? Because uh, the uh, the people who created po- Poland in 1918, they were claiming that they are quote unquote recreating Poland Lithuania, which was which had been partitioned uh, between uh, by by Russia, the Habsburgs, and Prussia. Obviously, this interwar Poland, uh, which was created in uh, 1918, had very little to do with Poland Lithuania, uh, which uh, had been partitioned in the late 18th century and actually published uh, like two years ago or three years ago a book uh, on this issue of uh, this uh, phony continuity or ideologized continuity between Poland, Lithuania and the Polish nation state. Uh, the, the books, it's a short book, the title is The Unpolish Poland. Yeah? The continuity is ide- more ideological than, uh, than, than, than real. However, Upper Silesia uh, had never been part of Poland, Lithuania. So, uh, why to claim it? Obviously, it was claimed because until uh, the middle of the 14th century, it was somehow connected to to this early Poland, the Kingdom of Poland. Yeah, fine. So, after 600 years, now uh, it should be back. Yeah? Uh, and, and obviously, that, that, that was the propaganda claim. The, the reality was that it was an important uh, industrial basin with coal and steelworks and so on. So, uh, newly created Polish nation state wanted a stake of it. Yeah, and uh, France was happy to support Poland because they wanted to weaken Germany after the Second World War. And uh, the Upper Silesians or the inhabitants of Upper Silesia, they didn't want to become part of Poland. However, there were some grudges against against Germany, so some voted uh, for Poland, but it was a minority choice. But Poland started a civil war, and then uh, the the allied powers uh, divided uh, 
Apersalia. So after the Second World War, all of Upper Silesia was granted to Poland, and all the population were officially in 1945 defined as ethnic Poles. However, the very strange term was invented Autochtons, yeah, like indigenous population. I mean, this term was never used in English or in Polish before the Second World War. So it was like a code word. Yes, officially you are Polish, but we don't believe you. <laughs> uh, we, we know you are German. Uh, but the idea was that uh, to keep the population uh, in place, because Poland didn't have another pool of qualified workers to run the industrial basin. And it was, and uh, it should be emphasized, the only functioning and not destroyed industrial basin in Central Europe at the end of the Second World War. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you, you didn't want to kill uh, the, the, the hen laying uh, gold, uh, golden eggs uh, because... Uh, if you had expelled all the population as Germans, who would, who would be working there? All that would go uh, to waste. And, uh, and to emphasize the economic dimension of it, uh, in uh, 1945 and 46, this industrial basin was producing three quarters of uh, <laughs> Poland's GDP. Yeah, so. <laughs> and uh, that, that con that situation continued uh, in, the, in, in communist Poland. Uh, people from Upper Silesia had to be Polish. Yeah. They were uh, mistrusted uh, by the authorities and treated as Germans. And many of them were finding legal or illegal ways to live for West uh, Germany. And nowadays, when people in Upper Silesia can kind of decide uh, about themselves and their identity. Some of them uh, decided to be German, some of them decided to be Polish, some of them decided to be Silesians, ethnic Silesians. Although the, the last choice is recorded in Polish censuses, officially it is not recognized by the Polish state. So why do you think, why do you think that why do you think the Silesians are not recognized as an official minority? Because it would allow them to, you know, kind of opt for uh, being Germans? Because obviously this would be just a different, you know, kind of different minority, different category. It's, it's, it has nothing to do kind of, or at least, you know, in official uh, list, it has nothing to do with Germans. So why not to allow them this kind of recognition? Yeah, um, I mean... Truly speaking, the German minority in Upper Silesia do not like the Silesians either. Yeah, they would rather the Silesians would be Germans. Yeah. So yes, uh, it, it is really a good question, and uh, and uh, and it is really flabbergasting because uh, if uh, Polish nationalism, especially nowadays, is so strongly anti-German, Silesians would be great option. Yeah. So there are fewer Germans and there are more Silesians. Yeah. But it doesn't work so uh, easy. Uh, 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 because uh, ethno-linguistic nationalists also uh, has this ideal of purity, quote unquote. Yeah, everyone should be Pope, and uh, all the all the other guys who speak other languages, they should be out or they should be assimilated. Now, Poland Poland signed the 
Framework Convention on the Protection of Minorities, this uh, Council of Europe document, uh, uh, signed and, 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 and ratified, and also this European Charter on, on, on uh, my, uh, regional or minority languages. And uh, Poland, uh, after ratifying these two documents, uh, also produced an act the parliament produced an act passed an act on the protection of ethnic and national minorities in this act of 2005 or 6 um, they defined national minorities uh, as minorities with a kin state having kin states yeah like the germans uh, in, in poland are a national minority because there is a kin state of germany out there and ethnic minorities are defined as minorities without taking states. So, Lemkos or Rusins uh, are uh, ethnic minorities or Tatars because they don't have kin states. Now, we have, you have in Poland long lists of protected minorities or protected uh, languages. But if you, as a researcher, start having a look at this uh, list, for instance, the Tatar language is being protected uh, in Poland, and you and you can scratch your head because Tatar was never spoken in Poland ever as a language, as a community language. Uh, although Tatars lived in Poland, Lithuania, they settled in Poland, Lithuania in the 14th century. They arrived from Crimea. But they, they were males. Yeah. They, they became accepted to the army, they became noblemen, but they married local women, Slavic-speaking women. So they were always speaking Slavic. So, look, you are trying to protect something which does not exist. Okay. That's how Polish national... That, that, that's how the letter of the law is met, but, but not uh, real needs. On the other hand, you have, uh, apart from languages, you have also uh, minorities, like uh, uh, Karaites, uh, are, uh, or Karaites, if you want to pronounce it differently, are uh, protected in Poland. And according to the last census, there are like 40 people in Poland. Okay. However, if you look at the census, the Silesian speakers are the largest minority in today's Poland. They are, they are like uh, nine, uh, almost one million people. Yeah? And Silesian speaker, and the Silesian language is the second largest in Poland after Polish, spoken on everyday basis by half a million people. So, recognizing the Silesian language and recognizing the Silesian as a minority would lessen the homogeneity of the Polish nation as understood in the terms of ethnolinguistic nationalism. Because now, when you take all the minorities listed and officially recognized, and all the languages listed and, and, uh, and officially recognized, the, uh, the number of the members of these minorities and the number of the speakers of these minority languages are less than 1% of the, 
of the Polish population. And I call it the unofficial 1% principle of today's uh, Polish ethno-linguistic nationalism. Uh, Warsaw recognizes as many uh, minority languages and as many minorities as long as the number of people speaking these languages and belonging to these minorities uh, does not surpass the threshold of 1%. Yeah. And, and, and uh, if you recognize Silesians as an ethnic um, minority, they would amount to around 3% of the Polish population. So it is a no-go. Interesting. Um, let me just ask you a question, kind of going back to the interval Poland. I know that, that for the Polish census in 1931, there was a special category introduced of Tutatio, or locals, and this was especially done to kind of lower the number of Belarusians or Ukrainians and so on. So, and, and you mentioned that it could have been, you know, an argument to decrease the number of Germans. So why did this work in terms of Ukrainians or Tutatio and didn't work with Silesians? It just seems to me a little bit of a, a paradox. Not at all. Remember that in interwar Poland, one third of the population were, in light of Polish ethno-linguistic nationalism, considered to be ethnically non-Polish. And uh, the biggest minority were Ukrainians. So there was no hope to lower the number of people belonging to minorities, because they were 30%. Yeah. On the other hand, the policy was to break up the big blocks of minorities into smaller ones to deal with them, uh, you know, as a smaller group of pressure. So uh, until today, you have a certain result of this policy. Yeah? Like in, in, in today's Poland, you have Lemkos, recognized as an ethnic minority and and uh, however however they could be considered ukrainians yeah uh, so so there is there is a follow up of this policy until uh, and it, it is a real life effect because these people who were created by such policies of breaking up uh, larger blocks of minorities into smaller ones, nowadays identify as Lemkos, and, and that's it, yeah. Uh, so that's how it happened. On the other hand, remember that the vast number of these minorities were expelled from Poland, killed in the Holocaust, left under duress, or assimilated by force in communist Poland which was a totalitarian state uh, run officially in line with the principle of communists and loyally, loyal to the Soviet Union, but vis-a-vis -vis the population living in Poland, nationalist, ethno-linguistic nationalist was this mask which the communist authorities were putting on their faces to make communist Poland palatable to the population at large. And Communist Poland was considered to be pure, quote-unquote, ethno-linguistic Polish nation-state without any minorities. Minorities were zero. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the end of communism, and uh, there is uh, uh, some people are, I mean, 
there is democracy, freedom of speech, and some people decide, no, no, we are not really ethnic Polish, we are Orthodox, we are Ukrainians, we are Silesians, uh, and, 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 and so on. So this was allowed, but, but the, the, the uh, dogma of pure, quote-unquote, ethno-linguistic Polish nation-state is strong, and it's still there. So the authorities, the power that be, uh, following the democratic principles, yeah, yeah, we observe whatever the Council of Europe wants, but we, we are we are pure ethno-linguistic nation-state, yeah. So uh, and and we do not want to 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 be deprived of of this great achievement which was uh, arrived at during the communist period. So now, nowadays, when you look at all these publications, you have this kind of mantra. Yes, in Poland there are some minorities, but they are less than 1% of the population. Yeah. So you, as the government, uh, consciously or not consciously, you are following this mantra and, and the Polish national master narrative and the Polish ethno-linguistic national ideology. And, and, and now you have the dilemma. Okay. You recognize... Silesians, they would be three percent of the Polish population. Doesn't look too good. Yeah. So, so they are a social group of the Polish nation. Fine. It's interesting because uh, when you were, were, you know, where you were speaking, I was thinking that obviously now a lot of Ukrainians and Belarusians are coming to Poland, but a great, a great number of those people are actually, you know, kind of have some link to Polish heritage or have some family history. Like myself, I also have this Polish card, and and when I was at the embassy or in in Kiev, you know, accepting this card, I needed to sign that that I declare that I belong to the Polish people, and and it feels like you know they do encourage migration, but at the same time they don't want to dilute this homogeneity, you know, like saying that no, no, those Ukrainians are the same Poles, just you know, recovering their history, which is, and there is interesting. And there is an interesting twist. Because obviously I'm talking about Karta Polaka, yeah? the, uh, the ethnic card of an ethnic Pole, or the, card, the ID card of an ethnic Pole, if, if you want to translate it. Uh, obviously these cards are a new development, and the, the, the first state in Central Europe after the end of communism, which started uh, developing this kind of a card, was Slovakia. Then it was Hungary, <laughs> and now it is Poland. So obviously there are uh, around one million uh, Ukrainian citizens living, working in Poland who migrated, uh, and uh, practically everyone in Western and uh, in Central Ukraine uh, can claim some uh, ancestors with, Pol- with the citizenship of interwar Poland, yeah. And on this basis, they can claim this uh, ID card of an ethnic Pole. So, from the perspective of the Polish statistics, these people are Poles. So, there is no migration. The purity of the country is thick. Now, it's coming with a twist, with an anti-Semitic twist. Because practically, like 15 to 20% of the Jewish population of today's Israel 
could claim this card too, yeah, because uh, they great grandparents, uh, uh, grandparents uh, used to be citizens uh, of the, of interwar Poland, but they don't get it. Why? Because they are Jews. So, well, that's how purity is being managed. And 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 who said that Jews cannot be Poles? It was the guy who defined Polish ethno-linguistic nationalists, Roman the most. Because, yeah, Ukrainians can become Poles, because Polish culture is standing on the higher rank of uh, civilizational development, so Ukrainians, Belarusians, Russians would naturally uh, gravitate to Polish culture, would naturally speak Polish, would naturally write in Latin letters, and so on and so on. So they can become Poles. But Jews, they would never become Poles. Why? Because they are Jews. Why? Because they are Jews. Why? Because they are Jews. That's anti-Semitism. And the logic is completely logical. And uh, obviously, you can point out to Bolesław Leśmian, to Julian Tuwin, uh, the most important 20th century uh, Polish poets, or Bruno Schulz, writer, or Stanisław Lem, Another important Polish writer, yeah, who happened uh, uh, to go to the synagogue for religious rites, or the uh, or the uh, ancestors happened to. Yeah. So Polish ethno-linguistic nationalism is out there. It is not logical. It is an ideology. But it, if if you if you read some books, some declarations by Dmowski, uh, how he defined Polish nationalism, it is still being uh, run like this until today, and it was run, obviously without any references to Dmowski like that, uh, during uh, communism, uh, during communist Poland. So, yeah, this this anti-Semitism is still out there, unfortunately. Thank you. This is, this is really interesting, especially how kind of selective this this policy can be. I, I've never thought about you know this this Jewish case, and, and this is fascinating. No, if, if I may, if I may stop you. Obviously, if you want to know the current uh, uh, Ukrainian president Zelensky is of Jewish origin. Yeah. Truly speaking, it doesn't matter somehow when you. It would be it would be an impossibility because of this subterranean anti-Semitism underlying Polish nationalism until today that any person of some Jewish origin would become a Polish prime minister or Polish president. That's how strong it is. Well, I would say that anti-Semitism is also strong in Ukraine. Perhaps not that strong, but uh, obviously it's 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 still an issue, right? But uh, as you yeah you you rightly pointed that our current president and a lot of po- uh, people in political elites they are all of Jewish origin and somehow it's 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 accepted. Um, thank you. Uh, just one last question: Could you perhaps recommend for our listeners any uh, you know studies or? books that they could read on this linguistic politics in Central Europe, perhaps like, you know, just as a follow-up? You know what, it, it is one of the most interesting things ever, because 
The ethnolinguistic character of politics, of nations, of nationalism in Central Europe, in modern Central Europe of the past two centuries, has been so strongly internalized by education, by politics, by fiction, you name it, by the mass media, by the press, that it became kind of a transparent category. No one sees it. Yeah? It's, it is very difficult to see it. And if you, if, if you are unable to perceive, to notice a phenomenon, it is very difficult for a scholar to study because it does not exist. Yeah? And, uh, and uh, look, many people ask what Central Europe is. Yeah? <laughs> And uh, you, you, can, you can give any kind of a definition of Central Europe you want, like uh, the, the equidistant middle uh, strap of land on the continent of Europe running north, uh, from north to south. Fine, okay. But uh, if you want to uh, give a functional definition of Central Europe, you could say it, it is this part of the continent where... Uh, states are defined and created through and in accordance with the principles of uh, ethnolinguistic nationality. Yeah. So Norway is created like this. Sweden is created like this. Uh, Estonia, Latvia, uh, Poland, uh, to a degree Germany, especially after the Second World War, but there is the case of Austria. Yeah. Austria is not the language. Belarus is not defined through language, yeah? so it is also interesting things. Although these things are changing rapidly, as we've just talked about it with this ideology of the Russian word, yeah? which, which, which is based on the Russian language. Uh, and uh, you, in the south, you have Turkey and Italy, which are run according to this idea. So out of southern, you have this cluster of ethnolinguistic nation-states. Uh, not that I want to uh, start another talk, but there are just two clusters like this in the world. One here in Central Europe, here, well, <laughs> in Central Europe, and another one in, in Southeast Asia. But I'm not going there because we don't have time for that. Finland, actually, is not an ethnolinguistic nation state. Yeah? They have two languages, the, uh, official and national languages. Now, obviously, some books were written. Uh, Greenberg, uh, Robert Greenberg, wrote a book uh, like 15 years ago, Serbo-Croatian and its disintegration. Yeah? Because we as scholars and we as the, as the, as, 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 uh, the, uh, the general public reading newspapers and the mass media became aware consciously aware of the normative compulsion of ethnolinguistic nationalists when Yugoslavia broke up. New nation states were created. However, they couldn't be quote-unquote true, uh, true nation states as long as they didn't have their own specific national unshared languages. So Serbo-Croatian had to be broken up 
and nowadays Serbo-Croatia does not exist. Obviously, it exists. Uh, or, uh, the, the, lar- the largest part Yugoslav Wikipedia is in Serbo-Croatia. But officially, you have four languages. Yeah? You have Bosnian, Croatian, Montenegrin, and Serbian. Yeah? So, ethno-linguistic nationalism is well and alive, and people and politicians believe in it. And uh, it is used as an instrument uh, of political motivation. And uh, Robert Greenberg wrote uh, a book uh, about it. I came to all these kind of conclusions, which I've just presented to you in a nutshell form uh, in, in the course of our discussion, and wrote a, bo- a book about it. Because I, I noticed there's a gap. I mean, no one is talking like this. I, I wrote I wrote a book uh, uh, as my habilitation shrift, uh, uh, and it was published like 10 years ago. The title is The Politics of uh, uh, Language and Nationalism in Modern Central Europe. Uh, my, my, my goal was to make ethnolinguistic nationalism, its mechanism, origins, visible to the reader, and also to appeal for uh, depoliticization of language, that language should not be a destiny, which would be deciding about destroying your house or, or building your house, we, 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 which is pretty unwise, I, ha- I have to say. So then you have, uh, during the last 10 years, some kind of studies on the politics of language in specific countries appears. We've talked about uh, Ukraine, so Michael Moser uh, from the University of Vienna wrote uh, uh, just before the downfall of uh, Yanukovych uh, uh, his kind of heartfelt monograph, Language Policy and the Discourse of Languages in Ukraine. And and analyzed what was uh, going on there. But unfortunately, uh, there isn't much. And there is even f- fewer things about uh, the politics of script, writing, alphabets. Obviously, uh, we popularly think that alphabets uh, and writing systems are part of language. They are not. Uh, it is like... Um, uh, recording tape or CD-ROM are not part of speech <laughs> or not part of us, but uh, there is just one book on uh, language politics, uh, not so much in Central Europe, but also kind of evoked by the case of uh, the breakup of the Serbo-Croatian language because uh, scripts, the Latin alphabet and Cyrillic were very much used to this end, and uh, Nowadays, these languages go for one script only, mostly. Um, but uh, Serbo-Croatian was biscriptal, used officially two alphabets. And uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Buncic uh, wrote uh, and edited uh, and invited some scholars to contribute to this kind of his monograph, which became partly an edited volume, and it's called Biscriptality. It was published in Germany. Yeah. So uh, these, these are a few books. And now I'm, I'm also decide to prepare an atlas of language politics uh, in modern Central Europe. 
which would be showing this kind of uh, politicization of language, languages and political uses to which they were extended. Like, you speak a wrong language, now you need to be expelled, you go to your country. But sir, I've lived here and my family for 600 years. No, you need to go, you are a foreigner. Yeah, All the Jews are gone, yeah? They were kicked out, killed in the Holocaust or kicked out after the Second World War because they do not belong to Europe. Yeah? That's how anti-Semitism works, yeah? So this atlas of uh, language politics in modern Central Europe, now the title is uh, Words in Time and Space, because it's, it's better from the marketing perspective, uh, I guess so. And uh, Central European, CU Press, Central European University Press uh, are going to publish uh, this atlas uh, um, this winter, I hope. I started working in it in 2009, so it is time, high time to stop and to finish it. The good news is that uh, they would make it an open access publication, so users, if they are interested, they would be able to, um, to, to read it without paying through, uh, through their noses, you know, some outlandish price for a printed uh, copy. Excellent. You, we are looking forward to your forthcoming historical atlas, definitely. And I think it will be very uh, interesting and useful for the wider audience as well. Um, thank you, Tomasz, very much for your time and for this, this a lot of interesting topics that we have discussed. You're welcome. So we are done. <laughs> Let's...